0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. If you're anything like me, you hear that passage and you start looking around to see who's not here, Um, because oftentimes we come to this passage really only during a time when it's being followed, Um, when we've reached that point where somebody needs to be brought before the church. It seems like we don't really ever preach out of this passage otherwise, um, but we're going to preach out of it this week. Uh, so don't worry, we're not, we're not bringing anybody uh, before the church this week. We're, we're going through our church covenant, I remember the word, the church covenant, and um, we are at the, the point in our church covenant where, it's, where it says that we will attempt to restore sinning brethren. We will attempt to restore sinning brethren. So, of course, Matthew chapter 18 is is kind of the classic passage that we look at. Um, I don't know if you can turn these monitors down. Thanks, because I'm feeling, yeah, I'm feeling really loud, <laughs> and I'm going to get louder. So, um, so usually we come to this passage when we're talking about church discipline, and usually... Um, when we're talking about church discipline, which I, I really hate that phrase because that's not even a biblical phrase. Um, that's why we say pursue uh, biblical restoration, right? In fact, that's the, that's the uh, title of the message uh, this morning is pursuing biblical restoration. Um, and so we're, we're trying to, to come to that from the word of God. Why do we have this in our covenant? Why are we covenanting together to make sure that we are going to pursue one another in order to restore one another. Um, And a lot of times we come to these middle six verses of Matthew chapter 18, and that's kind of the only place that we park. And when you read the passage, there's a whole lot more going on, and in my opinion, a whole lot more that is um, included in what Christ is trying to teach about Restoring sinning brothers. It's not just these six verses right in the middle of Matthew chapter 18, and so that's one of the reasons why we read through the whole thing. We won't read through the whole thing again. Um, And most of the time, of course, we prefer to go verse by verse through a passage, especially when we're going through a book. Uh, We're not going to be able to do that this morning. We would be here till probably two o'clock if we did that, and you don't want to listen to me that long. So, um, but we're going to take this idea, this concept of restoring sinning brothers and see what Christ has to say about it in the totality of this passage, not just in those little middle six verses, but we want to see what what everything that Christ is saying about this process of restoring one another here in Matthew chapter 18. So we're not going to be able to cover everything this morning uh, that you may see in here. There may be some phrases in here um, that perk your interest that uh, maybe you might have questions about. There may be some things uh, that you know are, are hotly debated uh, between one faction of Christianity and another. Um, so there are some things in here that, that we will um, kind of skip over a little bit because they, they don't uh, speak directly to what we're talking about this morning. I'm sure at some point we'll be preaching through the book of Matthew and, and we'll hit on those. Probably I'll end up with those. I seem to get all the difficult controversial passes for some reasons. Um, But we're looking at restoration. What is restoration? What is restoration? The English word restore means to bring back to a former or original or normal condition, such as a building or a statue or a painting, or to bring back to a state of health, soundness, or vigor. All right, to bring back to a state of health, soundness, or vigor. Um, Eric mentioned this word last week. It's carartizo, which is the Greek word. And, and it also means restore. It means to reconcile, which is what he was talking about last week, reconciling our differences. But it also means to make good, to restore to a right mind or to mend as if you were mending a bone. And really in this passage, that's the idea. That's the concept. It's uh, it's not so much, you know, making a work of art better. <laughs> it's restoring something, mending something, fixing something. And in many ways, that's fixing The way that we think. I like to, um, I I don't know a whole lot about cars. Um, My wife can attest to that. I'm a YouTube, I have a t-shirt that says certified YouTube mechanic uh, that my in-laws gave me because that's, that's how I do it, you know, and, and it's been fairly successful. There's some things I leave to the professionals, but, uh, but I, 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 I try the best I can to do what I can with my car so I don't have to pay exorbitant fees uh, to get it done, but, uh, but I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just following a set of instructions that somebody who knows what they're doing gave to me, um, and so, it, but, but even with that, I really like watching those shows about car restorations, I don't know why, because I have no clue what they're talking about. They're talking about this engine, and they've done this and that to this engine, and I'm just like, cool, paint it and make it look nice. That looks good, all right? So I like them, them taking these junkers that they find out in the, in the field, in the grass somewhere, and they bring it in, and, and sometimes in their own lot, <laughs> in the grass, and they bring it in, and they fix it all up, and they make it good as new, right? They, they make it, they restore it back to what its former glory to what it should be, And that's kind of the picture that I have here uh, as we look at believers. And when we fall, we need to be restored because in reality, as believers, we've been made right. Have we not? We've been made pure. We've been made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet when we sin and we fail, in some sense, we mar that. We walk away from that. We pursue something else instead of it. And so when we restore our sinning brethren, we're bringing them back into that right relationship with God and with the body of Christ. And so that's our big idea this morning. The big idea this morning is missing from my notes. Here it is. When we pursue biblical restoration of sinning brothers, God is glorified and the body grows. When we pursue biblical restoration of sinning brothers, God is glorified and the body grows. As we look at this passage that Christ gives us here in this teaching, it's one full session where he's sitting there and he's talking to his disciples and he's talking about several different things. And often we hear preaching from this passage on each of these different sections of scripture, but really it's all one big conversation. And the first thing that I want us to notice from that conversation is that biblical restoration expects believers will sin. Biblical restoration expects believers will sin. Did you know that? Did you know that your brother or your sister in Christ is going to fail? They're going to sin? It is kind of funny in a weird sense that we are surprised when we hear that somebody is involved in something. We're, we're surprised. Now, we're surprised because, you know, we know them. And, we, and they're a good person, right? They, they love Jesus. They want to follow after him. They want to do what's right. And yet, they've done this thing. Usually, um, if it gets to the point uh, of, uh, of bringing it to the church, it's something uh, that we would consider pretty bad. Um, but we're surprised. We're caught off guard because, for some reason, we don't expect each other to, to walk in that manner. And that's good, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't expect each other to just live in debauchery, right? We should expect more of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be encouraging one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think sometimes we're a little bit more surprised than we should be. And biblical restoration expects believers will sin. Why? Well, that's because we're sinners from the beginning, right? Right? We're sinners from the beginning. As Jesus is talking to these disciples, he's hearing them, or he's, they he's, actually brought a question to him that is full of selfish pride, is it not? They come to him and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus has to change the way that they think. He has to bring them back down to the right mindset, As he takes this child and he points out the lowliness of this child, the humility of this child, and he says, Unless you humble yourselves like this child, then the one who does that, he's gonna be the greatest. The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven that we wanna lift up and, and celebrate is the one who is humble, who is like this child. But we are not like that, are we? We're proud. We're sinful people. From the beginning, we were sinful people. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 say this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3 echoes this uh, psalm. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an empty grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In our natural state, we have nothing good in us. We only pursue sin. We only desire sin in our natural state. But thankfully, we were not left there. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, was born as a baby, lived the perfect life that we never could, gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to take on the wrath of God that we deserved. And in doing so, he rescued us. He rescued us from sin and from death and from hell, Ephesians chapter 2 But even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Christ has magnificently redeemed lost sinners. And if you're here this morning and you claim the name of Christ, you are redeemed. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us that you are a new creation. There is new in you. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And yet every day we continue to live with the flesh. Every day we are left still here, yes, with the power of the Holy Spirit, but still in struggle with the flesh. Galatians 5.17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul had this problem in Romans Chapter 7, verses 14 through 20, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not want, for, for I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Here's Paul, the guy that we would probably say in human terms is the greatest Christian that ever lived. He wrote over a third of the New Testament, greatly used by God. And here's Paul saying the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the wicked things I don't want to do, I find myself doing over and over and over again. Folks, we are redeemed, but we are still sinners. We're redeemed, but we're still sinners. We're still fallen people. We will still fail. We will still sin. And Christ is reminding us of that even here in this passage. In in these first few verses, he's he's reminding us of the gravity of sin and the gravity of becoming a stumbling block. He takes this little child, and notice there's that phrase in there that says, of these who believe in me. I think he's talking about believers here. He's not talking about... Um, the lost world in fact we'll get to that here in a minute with the with the shepherd but he's talking about believers here he's saying there's going to be temptation there's temptation in the world there's going to be temptation but what does he say woe to him by whom the temptation comes how often even in the last few weeks as we've been talking about Christian liberty as we've been talking about reconciling differences have we thought about the fact of the way that we act and the way that we respond and the things that we say and do, are they, first of all, sin, but secondarily, are they a stumbling block? What does he say? Woe to that person who causes one of these little ones to sin. Now, there's some debate whether he's talking about a child still at that point or whether he's talking about a young believer, but either way, Woe to him who is creating a stumbling block for somebody else to sin. He says, I expect the world to be tempting us, but you as believers. What does he say? It's better for you if what? If a millstone, you guys know what that is, right? The big stone that was used to crush the grain. If that millstone were tied about your neck and you were cast into the sea. He says, that's better for you than if you become a stumbling block. For somebody else. That's the gravity of sin in the church. And then he goes on and he talks about how we should respond to sin in our lives. What does he say? If your hand offends you, what should you do? Cut it off. That's drastic. You know, we look at that and we're like, surely Christ was talking metaphorically, you know? And, and I, I think that he was. <laughs> But he's talking about the severity of sin in the believer's life. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better. What does he say? It's better for you to enter heaven without those physical parts and to be clean than to have your whole body and be headed to hell. That's the gravity of sin. And he's talking to his disciple. He's talking to believers. He's talking to us. And he says, look, you need to understand sin is real and it's devastating. There's, there's a gravity to it. And, and, we, and I expect that you will sin. He said the world is going to tempt you. I, I get that. You're going to fall. And he's going he's gonna to tell us how to deal with that. Down in those very familiar verses. You're going to fall. Biblical restoration expects Brothers to sin. Jesus reminds us of the gravity of sin. Will we fail? Absolutely. But that's why he created restitution. That's why he created restoration. When we pursue biblical restoration, we should expect sin to happen in the lives of our brothers. Not only should we expect that? But biblical restoration exhibits the Father's heart. Biblical restoration exhibits, puts on display, the Father's heart. Again, I mentioned this already, but it's interesting. A lot of times when people preach from this passage, they preach from the that section right there, those verses um, 10 through 14, where it talks about the shepherd going out, right? And they preach from that, and they preach it as a... A salvific message. And I think in, in a sense that that is true. But in the context of what Christ is preaching here, he's talking about sin of believers. And he gives this illustration of the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes out after the one who has wandered off. He goes after the sinning believer who has wandered away from him. I think it's interesting that there's a lot of opinions about how sin uh, affects us, how it affects our relationship with God. And I love the way that Christ gives this example because it's just a reminder that God is not the one walking away. I want you to think about that. God is not the one walking away. When we sin, God is not sitting there with a stiff arm saying, uh-uh, not good enough. Yes, our sin has an effect. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 tells us that uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Absolutely, our sin has an effect on God. He's grieved when we sin because we've, again, taken what he has given to us, the ability to live for him. We have the Holy Spirit and we're taking that and we're choosing to go a different path. We're choosing to follow after our own desire, our own pursuit, our own lust. And it grieves the Father's heart. And when we're living in sin, it changes the way that we think about God. It keeps us from thinking about God biblically. It keeps us from wanting to relate to people in the church biblically. It keeps us from everything we've been talking about in our covenant as a church. When we live in sin, we're not going to do those things. Because we'll be pursuing our own desires, our own flesh. Our sin does have an impact, but God is not the one holding us away with a stiff arm. What did Jesus say? He said, the father is just like this. The father is just like this shepherd who when the sheep has wandered away, he goes out and he searches and he finds him and he brings it back and he rejoices. That's how God responds to our sin. He did it first in the person and work of Jesus Christ. On the cross. And he does it now through the body of Christ. God pursues us in our sin. He doesn't stiff arm us. So if if God doesn't walk away from us, is it okay if we just keep doing it? What does Romans 6 say? God forbid. Let it not be so. We should not continue in sin that grace may abound. Because that's taking advantage of grace. That's not having our minds set biblically on what sin really is. So sin does affect our relationship, but we are not left alone. God does not cut us off when we sin. We are still his children. We are still his sheep. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That is God's desire. His desire is to bring us back, to restore us back, To holiness. Job five seventeen through eighteen says this: "Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up; He shatters, but His hands heal." Aren't you grateful that God is a pursuing God? And today he uses believers, those covenant members that you have joined with, he uses them to help bring you. And he uses you as covenant members to help bring others back to him in a right relationship with him. Galatians 6.1, Paul gives us this command. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trans- transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. James 5, we just recently went through the book of James. James 5, 19 through 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Paul commands us to be active participants in the restoration process. Have you ever thought about that? You have been called to be an active participant in the restoration process. That means you need to be aware of what's going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That means you need to have relationships that are built to where when there is something standing between them and you, you know about it. Maybe not because they told you, but because there's distance there that wasn't there before. That's the type of relationships we should have within the body of Christ. But he has called us to be a part of this process. And when we do that, when we follow these processes of biblical restoration, we participate and we show, we exhibit the Father's heart. Because he longs for sinning people to be restored to him. Number three, biblical restoration Extends the son's grace. Biblical restoration extends the son's grace. And I get this from those very familiar verses. We have this process of. What we unfortunately often call church discipline. We have this process of restoration. That Christ gives us. And I see it as extending his grace. First of all, because this is his command, this is Jesus' specific command as to how we are to deal with sin in the life of in each other's lives, how we are to deal with someone who has walked away either from the truth or someone who has walked away from uh, from living according to the truth. I thought it was interesting in that James verse it says, "Whoever uh, knows someone who's walked away from the truth, right? Because isn't that really really where it begins?" Isn't that where sin really began? Did God really say this? It starts with a desire to walk away from the truth. A willingness to let lies seep in and draw us away. An unwillingness to be firmly grounded in the word of God. And here we have Jesus himself specifically giving us these steps. Obviously, we know that he has extended or offered grace to us in the form of salvation. Romans 5, 1 through 9 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He has extended that in salvation, but he extends his grace even in this process of biblical restoration I see this extension of grace in several ways first of all I see it extended in the prolonged pursuit of the sinner have you ever thought about that in this passage I mean a lot of times we kind of look at this and we're like okay step one step two step three right how are we going to get somebody out of the church step one step two step that's, that's not what Jesus is doing here He's not giving us a formula to kick people out of the church. He's giving us a process to keep people in the church. He's giving us a process to keep people in a right relationship with Christ, in a right relationship with the covenant body. That's what he's desiring. That's the Father's desire is restoration. And Jesus is giving us a very gracious process. Multiple touch points. Right? What's the first one? If you know someone sinned, Go to them. Right? It's a one on one private conversation. There's no need to let everybody know your dirty laundry, right? There's no need to, to tell everybody what's happened yet. Brother, I know you've, I know you've been doing this, you know, and it's wrong. It's against the word of God. Private. That's the first thing that Christ gives us. A private conversation. Is that not gracious? How did he deal with Ananias and Sapphira? Walk in, one lie, boom, dead. Right in front of everybody. Now, there was a purpose in that. <laughs> but imagine if if the first step was tell the church. Stop doesn't sound very gracious does it step 1 go privately and if he doesn't hear you what then go with two or three witnesses right or is it one or two i forget go with witnesses bring some people to substantiate what you have what you have seen what you've heard so there's another step again we're we're not telling everybody it's 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 still in the confines of just a couple people longing, begging, desiring for this person to come back in a right fellowship with God and with his church. And then, if he doesn't hear you, kick him out. Right? No. Bring it to the church. Bring it to, now it's made public. But it's not made public To get rid of him right away, right? What does it say? And if he does not hear the church, then treat him like an outsider. This is a very grace-filled process. And I fear that many times, at least in my experience, it has felt like a very analytical process like a very step-by-step process. And I think if we don't understand the Father's heart as the shepherd going after the sheep, we won't understand our part in offering grace. Do we come to the one who has sinned in self-righteousness, in haughtiness, in pride, Saying, brother, you just need to get right. Or do we come graciously, kindly? That verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says that we are to do this with gentleness. Gentleness. We're to restore sinning brothers with gentleness. Is that how we approach one another when we've sinned? First of all, do we approach one another? Are we willing participants in this restoration process? And secondly, do we do it in a way that is full of grace? This next section kind of, I think, bleeds into this point as we come to Peter's question. Peter has a very natural question to what Christ is teaching, does he not? He says, okay, okay, but here's, here's the question. What if, what if he sins against me seven times? Should I, give him, should I forgive him all those seven times? Again, we, you know, you can dig into this a little bit deeper. There was kind of this uh, rabbinic rule that you had to forgive somebody three times. And so uh, Peter's kind of doubling that. Plus one, you know, he feels pretty good maybe about what he's offering here. And Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but depending on which translation you're looking at, 77 times or 70 times seven. Either one is a lot. If he does this over and over and over and over and over again, forgive him. That's part of biblical restoration in the church. That's part of it. Forgiveness is an aspect that I think many times we don't even think about when it comes to this process of biblical restoration. And yet, right here it is in the passage. But it's another form of grace. That Christ gives to this process of biblical restoration. He gives us the grace of this prolonged process, and He gives us the grace of us coming in a gentle spirit, a gentle attitude, a humble attitude, and He gives grace in the fact that we are to forgive. When we pursue biblical restoration, we will extend the Son's grace. To our brothers. That's what you're doing. When you go to someone who has sinned. You're not going to that person. To fix them. That's not what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to confront them. Christ is the only one that fixes them. We can't. We can't force somebody to be right. We can't go in there with an attitude of, I've got this. I'm going I'm to make it right. I'm going to fix this person. I'm going to tell them what for. That's not biblical restoration. Biblical restoration requires us to extend the son's grace to our fellow brothers when they've fallen. Fourthly, biblical restoration expands the spirit's sanctifying work. Biblical restoration expands the spirit's sanctifying work. We see this um, here in this passage of, of Peter. Christ is calling Peter to do something that is supernatural. He's calling Peter to be someone who forgives in a way that we do not naturally desire to forgive over and over and over and over again, 70 times 7 or 77 times. It doesn't matter. Forgive your brother when he repents. Earlier it said, he said, if you if you go to your brother and he repents, you've gained a brother. Rejoice. Repent. First Peter one, verses one and two says this Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Sanctification of the Spirit. What do we mean by the Spirit's sanctifying work? Sanctification is talking about setting something apart for holiness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He sets us apart He sanctifies us. He makes us holy at the time of salvation. We receive him. But his continual work in our life is to spur us on to continually bring us back to that holiness, to continually restore us to holiness before a holy God. That's his job. That's what he does for us as believers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you, so much, that you do so much more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the, through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is as an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore... Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen says, "Now the now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord." Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we repent of our sin, when we redirect our thinking about our sin to match what God says about sin, when we turn away from pursuing our sin back to pursuing God, that is another step in the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Because it is Him bringing us another step back to holiness. So when that sinning brother repents, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying them. He is working in their life. He is bringing them back to a state of holiness before a holy God. And when we participate in this process of biblical restoration, not only is the one who returns being sanctified, but we are being sanctified as well. How is that? How is this sanctification expanded during this process? We do not naturally desire to participate in biblical restoration. Biblical restoration is a product of godly love. Biblical restoration is a product of us loving one another the way that God loves us. That's why it exhibits the Father's heart. The Father desires to restore his people. And when we have that same desire, we are viewing one another with a love that is not our own. With a love that is not generated from ourselves. This act of forgiveness is an act of love. Forgiveness is not something that we typically desire to do on our own. We like to hold grudges. We like to bring things up from the past. We like to to nail somebody to the wall when they did something again and again and again. We like to judge. Well, did they really repent? I don't know. They seem a little shaky. Is that forgiveness? If we look at the one who repents and we question, are we forgiving? I would submit that we are not. Forgiveness is an act of love. Ephesians four thirty-one through 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And instead do what? Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What was the example that Christ gave to Peter? Christ gave to Peter the example of a great king who had a servant who owed him a debt he never could pay. Does that sound familiar? And he says that servant was forgiven everything and yet went out. And I love the way it says it says, and he's choked his brother. Is that not a vivid image for a very small amount of money compared to what he had just been forgiven of? And yet, do we not do the same? We have been forgiven a debt that none of us could pay. And yet so often we withhold forgiveness from one another. Even when they repent. Even when they repent. There's other passages that says forgive them whether they repent or not. It's your job to forgive. But specifically when they've returned and they've repented, there should be forgiveness. There should be rejoicing. Not skepticism. Not wondering when they're going to do it again. Again. Forgiveness and love. Forgiveness is an act of love. Proverbs ten twelve says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Chapter 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.12-13, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The the rest of the New Testament echoes this example that Christ gives of the servant who is unwilling to forgive. It says that is not how we as believers in the body of Christ should act. When we choose to forgive, the Holy Spirit not only is sanctifying the repentant sinner, but he's sanctifying us as well because he is making us a little bit more like Christ. He is helping us a little bit more to show those fruit of the Spirit, which the very first one is what? Love. When we pursue biblical restoration, the Spirit's sanctifying work impacts all of us. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that Christ has given us not a discipline process, but a restoration process? That he's given us the opportunity to be in a covenant relationship with one another that produces restoration, that produces joy, that produces mutual growth when we pursue biblical restoration of sinning brothers, God is glorified and the body grows. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us here on earth to fall to our flesh and and be left on our own. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the spirit who dwells within us, who convicts us of sin. We thank you that you have given us the body of Christ to be in relationship with so that we can hold one another accountable in a gracious and loving way, Lord. We thank you for the example that Christ has given us. We thank you for the commands that Christ has given us. And Father, I pray that as we Come together in covenant relationship here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, that we would do so not in a way to to nitpick, to find fault in one another, but that we would live with one another lovingly and graciously, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that differences would be reconciled, that we would show grace in areas of Christian liberty. And Lord, I pray that when we do sin, when we do fail, when we miss the mark, We follow after our own lusts and our own desires. I pray that we will be faithful as your body to come alongside one another and to call one another back to a right relationship with you and with your body, Lord. We thank you for your grace and salvation. We thank you for your grace and sanctification, Lord. May we exemplify who you are and how we respond to one another in the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen.